This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. The time is 1700 hours Central African time on this lovely Monday afternoon. I hope you're having yourself a good start to the week. My name is Samora Mangesi and I'm in studio with Zwalani Tulo, Nosithe Zuma as well as Neto Chimani. A couple of top stories on the show at this hour. Campaigns go ahead in Cameroon for the February 9th, 2020 local council and parliamentary elections despite violence. The European Union has threatened to take punitive measures against South Sudan if an inclusive government is not formed in the country. And Turkish President Recep Tayyip uh, Erdogan says Turkey will continue to side with Libyan people. We'll also be having your economics as well as sporting news a little bit later on in the hour. But let's start off this hour as we should. Here is your latest news bulletin with Jolani Tullo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. A Portuguese hacker says he's behind the leak of thousands of financial files exposing alleged mismanagement of funds by Angolian billionaire Isabel dos Santos. Hugh Pinto is already in prison awaiting trial in a separate hacking case. His lawyers say he was acting in the public interest. The BBC's Alison Robertson has the story. Pinto is currently in prison on remand, charged with 90 counts of crimes relating to his hacking of the computers of various sporting organizations and the creation in 2015 of the Football League's website. Confidential information he posted there about leading clubs triggered official inquiries in various countries into the tax affairs of top players. Now, his lawyers have said that Mr Pinto was also the source of Luanda Leaks, a cache of more than 700,000 files centred on the business dealings in Portugal and elsewhere of Isabel dos Santos. Ms dos Santos has denied any wrongdoing. An Egyptian court has sentenced 37 people to jail terms, including life imprisonment for joining or supporting Islamic State's Sinai province affiliate. Militants loyal to Islamic State have been waging an insurgency in the north of the Sinai Peninsula and other parts of the country. A Cairo criminal court sentenced eight defendants to life terms and 29 to terms ranging from 1 to 15 years. Prosecutors accused them of planning attacks promoting the group's ideology in prisons and financing itself. Seven were acquitted. The the defendants, all of whom pleaded not guilty, can appeal against the sentence at the Court of Cessation, Egypt's top civilian court. The Gambia has banned a movement opposed to President Adama Barrow's decision to, to renege on a promise to call for elections this year. President Barrow came to power in 2017 as the head of an alliance of parties opposed to the autocratic former leader Yaya Jammeh. The coalition agreed that he would lead a provisional government for three years and then call elections. Thousands of Gambians under the banner of the movement called Three Years Jotna have been holding protests under against the president's continued stay in power as tensions continue to build in the West African country. The government on Sunday banned the movement, which is described as subversive, violent and illegal. A statement by a government spokesperson, Ebrima Sankare, said the group was determined to illegally unseat the constitutionally elected government. 
A top Chinese health official has warned that Communist Party officials in rural areas are the weak point for preventing the spread of the new coronavirus. Hu Qinghua told journalists that some places still lack determination in the controlling of the epidemic, which has now spread to almost every part of China. Beijing has stepped up efforts to block the spread of the coronavirus by extending the New Year holiday by several days. The BBC's Robin Brandt has the story. People will not be returning to their homes or their workplaces until at the very earliest next uh, Monday. Because the reality is, just as we have experts here saying that the severity of this type of coronavirus is increasing and President Xi Jinping is warning of a grave challenge ahead, about half a billion people were about to start getting on trains and planes and into cars over the coming 24, 48 hours. And leave their family holiday and return to where they live or where they work. Meanwhile, two South African teachers working in China have been told to prolong their holidays due to the outbreak of the virus. Nalani and Zamama Josie are back in the country and were scheduled to leave next week, but their employers have instructed them to postpone their return. At least 40 cases have been reported in their country, which is eight hours from the epicenter of the outbreak in Hunan province. The cousins say they're concerned about the health and their health, rather, and job security. Everything shut down. Malls are shut down. Roads are closed. Cities are closed. Like people can't even leave their hometown. We need to postpone our flights so we don't end up paying more. But at the same time, I don't know if it's wise to postpone it. And then the virus is still pretty bad. You know what I mean? I'm not sure if I want to go back. I'm still deciding. It's not an easy decision to take, especially if it's like it means I'm going to be unemployed for months. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Campaigns have been launched in Cameroon ahead of the February 9, 2020 local council and parliamentary elections with violent clashes between the military and separatist fighters who have vowed uh, that the polls will not take place. The fighters have ignored calls from the United Nations and the Economic Community of Central African States for the elections to be organized in peace and are attacking staff of the elections management body and destroying electoral material. The UN, as well as the CMAC, uh, have condemned the increasing violence. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Francois Lucenifal, representative of the UN Secretary General in Central Africa, says Cameroonians should support their government 
and make the February 9 elections a success. We are here to make an appeal to all the stakeholders in Cameroon to maintain peace and unity in this country. It is very, very important that the citizens of this country vote and choose those people who represent them. Fall was accompanied to Cameroon by the Secretary General of the Economic Community of Central African State, CEMAC, Chadian Bon Ahmed Alami. La stabilité du Cameroun passe par, évidemment, le respect déjà de sa souveraineté, de son intégrité. Alam Mi said failure to hold elections may jeopardize efforts to bring peace to the north and southwest regions where separatists have waged a war for independence since 2016. Nous l'espérons, se passeront dans de très bonnes conditions sécuritaires. The UN and CEMAC envoys arrived in Cameroon as separatist fighters in the north and southwest mounted roadblocks and either abducted or beat up civilians seen with voter cards and election materials. Electoral body ELECAM said its offices in the northwestern towns of Ndu, Kumbo and Dop have been torched and some of its workers kidnapped. Others are on the run. Patrick Esso fled from the northwestern town of Santa, where he says clashes intensified on Thursday. He says he was abducted and kept in a separatist camp for five hours because he was found with a voter card. Esso says it will be impossible for the elections to take place. The President of the Republic should call for immediate ceasefire. I don't think that somebody will go and stand and say he wants to campaign while the country is in flames. Dennis Kemlemo, spokesperson for the Opposition Social Democratic Front that has its headquarters in Bamenda, says many of their candidates are on the run. Kemlemo said the SDF must go in for the elections in spite of the threats because it believes Cameroon's parliament stands a great chance of solving the problems in the English-speaking regions through legislation. I cannot just go to Libya. Neither can my colleagues candidates who are from Northwest travel there. It's a high risk. They will pick you and keep you till when the elections are over that you come out. The military has clashed with separatists several times and said it killed at least 17 insurgents. The separatists represent English speakers who want to secede from the rest of Cameroon and its French-speaking majority. They have vowed on social media that no election will take place in the English-speaking regions they call Ambazonia. Fighters have been attacking staff of the elections body ELECAM and destroying voting materials in spite of the threats and attacks. ELECAM chairman Eno Abrams Egwe says the elections will take place and promised voting will be secure. The different headquarters of political parties must be known by the security view to protect them. Security corridors will be put in place for the electors to move from one area to the other. Exceptionally, polling centers will be well protected and also all the meetings of political party leaders will be well protected. Political parties say more than 60 people have been abducted in recent days. The separatists have promised on social media to free the abductees after the polls. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon.
The European Union has threatened to take punitive measures against South Sudan if an inclusive government is not formed in the country on the 22nd of next month without the creation of new states as per the new peace agreement. The the EU's threat comes less than two weeks after the South Africa's Deputy President, David Mabuza, one of the mediators in a disagreement over fulfillment of the peace agreement, ruled that the issue of new states can be dealt with once the government has been established. James Shimanyula reports. European Union representative in South Sudan, Sneed Walsh, says all clauses of the new peace agreement that was signed last year by President Salva Kiir and his main political opponent, Riek Machar, should be fulfilled before the formation of an inclusive government of national unity in the third week of next month. She says the European Union will take punitive measures on South Sudan if it forms the government without conforming to the agreement in its entirety. Speaking to journalists at a press conference in Juba, Walsh made this urgent call on the creation of states before the formation of the government. We call on the parties to tackle these urgently because these are supposed to be tackled before the formation of the new government. Walsh explains what the European Union plans to do in case no progress is made in the creation of new states. If we feel as though we continue to see a lack of progress and a lack of enough leadership and political will in terms of implementing the outstanding challenges, of course this will require us to really reflect on how we work with South Sudan. But I hope that this doesn't have to happen. I hope that we do see progress and then we can focus on to increase our support to South Sudan. Walsh has asked parties planning to form the new government to seek advice from the East African trade bloc Intergovernmental Authority on Development, in short, IGAD. If the parties all agree that they want to talk to IGAD about having an amendment or something like that, then of course we will continue to be kind of playing a listening role and all of that. But at the moment, all we have to go by is, is what's currently written in the RRSIS. It's becoming very difficult. It is just not possible, frankly, that the tasks that need to be done on security can be finished by the 20th or the 22nd of February. That was Sneed Wash, European Union representative in South Sudan. Our remarks come less than a week after South Africa's Deputy President David Mabuza ruled that parties expected to form a new government in South Sudan can deal with the issue of new states in the days to come. Mabuza, one of the mediators in a disagreement of a fulfillment of the peace agreement in South Sudan, has taken a note of the fact that the government of national unity should have been formed last year. However, Mabuza says the issue of creation of new states has remained unresolved and delayed the establishment of the government. At this juncture, it may be fitting to flash back to the 17th of this month to hear what Mabuza said at a press conference in South Sudan's capital, Juba. We all agree that we're going to form the government of national unity, but we are going to subject the question of the number of states to an arbitration, a mechanism that is going to take 90 days, which is the proposal on the table. 90 days that will go into the government of national unit. Our feeling is that government does not have a problem with the proposal. We are now taking this proposal 
to all the other parties. We are going to finalize this proposal and we are going to make the public aware. That was South Africa's Deputy President David Mabuza. Meanwhile, Peter Kleto Aharanya, representative of Riek Machar in Tanzania, has issued a statement sharply criticizing Mabuza's ruling that the issue of creation of new states can be dealt with after the formation of the new government. The statement said, and I quote it word for word, the fact that David Mabuza wanted the government to be formed means that he has agreed with the government position to maintain the unpopular 32 states. In our view, this cannot be a position of a mediator but of someone who has already taken sides. The 32 states were created by a presidential decree, not through a referendum, and therefore creation of more states when you cannot even develop the 10 states is an unwise decision, end of quote. Machar, the spokesman in Tanzania, Peter Kleto Haranya, argues in the statement that the creation of 32 states contradicts the government argument that it does not have enough money to implement the agreement. Aharanya concludes his statement by saying, and I quote again, We in the SPLM-IO have opposed for a regional force to be deployed and for the international community and the African Union to address the issue of the number of states and their boundaries before the 22nd of February this year so that we form a government of national unity, end of that second quote. The SPLM-IO that Peter Kleto Haranya has referred to is the short form of Sudan People's Liberation Movement in opposition, led by President Salva Kiir's main political opponent, Riek Machar. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The South African non-governmental organization Health Systems Trust has released its 22nd edition of the eagerly awaited South African Health Review, otherwise known as the SHR, SAHR. Rather. The latest edition provides some analyses to key health issues debated in various fora over the past year. To discuss this, we're joined on the line by Dr. Temba Mweti, the executive, uh, chief executive officer of the Health Systems Trust and editor of the South African Review 2019. Dr. Mweti, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, uh, yes, good afternoon, and, and thank you very much um, uh, for having me, and thank you, and good afternoon to the listeners. Now, Doctor, could you tell us what the purpose of the South African Health Review is, and how is it normally put together? Thank you. Um, yes, no, the, the South African Health Review is um, is really an, an annual um, policy review and analysis journal, uh, which is put together by the by the by the the Health Systems Trust, and uh, this is usually done on the basis of getting, of inviting abstracts from um, authors who are who are experts in their respective subjects. And generally, this will be in important areas of uh, policy implementation uh, for the country to assess what progress has been, to provide a critical analysis of the progress that has been made, uh, and and sometimes even in the in, in the actual formulation of the policy itself, mm-hmm. so that this might then inform uh, uh, progress uh, going forward, and then and then allow the kind of progress that has been made. Uh, to be reviewed so that if say by you know like uh, 
by uh, 2030. We've got the the National Development Plan 2030, which will have health and other goals. There will be health goals articulated within that and health policies that will then drive that uh, at, at, at a national level. And then the key uh, role of the South African Health Review, it's, it's played an important part in South Africa's health system, and, and as, as you said, it's in its 22nd uh, uh, edition, in really being able to provide objective and evidence-based analysis from experts in their respective areas, which might then inform policy uh, going forward. So it's a key uh, resource for the South African health system. Now, Doctor, when we speak of challenges, what key challenges does this edition make mention of in the implementation of the national health insurance specifically and achievement of universal health coverage in South Africa? Okay, thank you. Right. You know, as you you'll be aware, you know, national health insurance or NHI, which is the tool that the country will be using to move towards um, uh, achievement of universal health coverage, and this really means access to quality health services for everyone, irrespective of your your level of income and so forth, and also ensuring that in accessing these quality health services, there is equity. And no one is left behind, and also to ensure that in accessing these services, nobody goes through catastrophic uh, uh, expenditure. So it's uh, it's really a big um, health service reform initiative for the country, which is in line with you know the country's health policies, its redistributive uh, a redistributive agenda, but making sure that uh, access to quality health services is a key part of what is provided. And one of the realities is that um, as, a, as a country, we know that we are one of the most unequal societies in the world. Definitely. There has been significant progress made in the 25 years since uh, democracy in terms of access to basic and particularly primary health care services for poor people, removing barriers to access for certain key services such as you know, you know, services for maternal and child care, services for children under five, uh, services for, for public health uh, diseases such as HIV, TB, and several others, improving maternal um, uh, health and so forth. So tremendous progress has been made. But despite this, there are, there are still huge discrepancies between the kind of quality of access to services that essentially the poorest section of the population has access to in terms of uh, just having access to public health services and the investment that uh, has been made in private health care services in the country because this at the end of the day is part of the investment of all resources uh, uh, within the country and government itself having a very large medical aid is a significant provider uh, of, of access to private health care. So the aim of MHI and um, universal health coverage is to ensure that at the end of the day, we are getting the most cost-effective uh, use of the investment in health care that the country is, is, you know, has made, that there is much better use of the expertise and capacity that exists in the, in the private health sector, and that uh, by then providing a more unified health service with the appropriate financing mechanisms, governance mechanisms for that financing, and being able to measure progress and ensuring quality of those services, 
that in the end everybody gets better health better health services and uh, and are provided more cost effectively and it's very much in line with uh, international uh, best practice now doctor when we speak of the nhi as well as universal health coverage uh, and and the implementation of it according to the south african health review would you say that we're still um on target in terms of maybe the timeline that we're looking at when it comes to when nhi and universal coverage will be able to be implemented in south africa well okay uh, i mean certainly in terms of where we have to get to there is a huge amount of work to be done. But there has also been a lot of work that's been done in investing in trying to see where the challenges in the health system are in terms of access, quality. There have been various um, you know, NHI pilot service projects that have been implemented, and I think there has been a specific review on progress with those, and perhaps uh, uh, the, some of the results were not as... as um, pleasing as, as might be in terms of, of the progress. But what that has done is it's informed the, the current major effort that the government is making and trying to work with the entire health service to ensure that uh, indeed we are on track in line with the kind of services that will be provided for, the kind of access that will be um, a part of the process, and also the, um, the kind of quality uh, benchmarks that uh, services will need to meet both in the public and private sector, and also working to ensure that uh, human resources for health gaps and others are addressed, which is a major challenge in the country, and it's a major challenge for many uh, developing countries uh, such as ours. And uh, and a lot of that comes from the imbalance in uh, resources between the the public and private sectors. And not, and, but however, that's not the entire answer. There's also a lot of work that needs to be done towards improving service quality, both from a delivery perspective and a healthcare provider uh, outlook. And, and all these things, you know, will intend to be done. Now, the broad goal, of course, is in terms of the NDP 2030, uh, uh, the National Development Plan 2030, which is in line also with the Global Sustainable Development goals is that really all countries should have achieved universal health coverage by the various metrics uh, uh, by uh, uh, by 2030. But the NHI, I think, has, has set, forward, set forth about a 14-year uh, period in which various phases will be implemented. And I think currently the you know, government with its partners and, and the entire health system will be working towards a certain level of achievement uh, by 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 2026, and I think no one is um, is uh, in any illusion as to how much work needs to be done. But I think the the key thing is that basically we've got the basic ingredients of a good health service in terms of access. What needs to be addressed currently is is issues of quality, improving efficiency, and making sure that we get better health outcomes for the kind of uh, health investments that we make. And as a country that invests almost 8% of its GDP in health, when you look at some of the outcomes that we are getting, really we, we aren't getting the kind of outcomes that we should. So clearly what NHI recognizes is that the 
the National Health Service in the current way it performs is really not in the status that we'd want it to be and there needs to be considerable improvement going forward such that in the end we are performing at a level similar to middle-income countries like ours and which are investing the kind of financial investments that, that South Africa makes in health, which by global standards are relatively high. Dr. Mwiti, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Well, we do hope that the South African Health Review will continue to inspire frank debates, analysis and research, as well as innovation, you know, in order to guide the country on its journey of universal access to a quality health system and services. But that was Dr. Tamba Mweti, the Chief Executive Officer of the Health Systems Trust and editor of the South African Review 2019. The time is now 17.28 Central African time. Right after this, we're going to be heading to the news headlines with Jwalani Tulo. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. And now it's time for your latest news headlines. Here is Jwalani Tullo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, a Portuguese hacker says he's behind the leak of thousands of financial files exposing alleged mismanagement of funds by Angolian billionaire Isabel dos Santos. An Egyptian court has sentenced 37 people to jail terms, including life imprisonment, for joining or supporting Islamic State's Sinai province affiliate. And finally, the Gambia has banned a movement opposed to President Adama Barrow's decision to renege on a promise to call elections this year. For Channel Africa, I'm SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan says Turkey will continue to side with Libyan people to prevent the conflict-ravaged country from becoming a playground for terrorist groups and warlords. He was speaking at a joint news conference with his Algerian counterpart, Abdelmajid Tebone, following their bilateral meeting in the capital, Algiers. Erdogan's trip to Algeria, part of an African tour that will include stops in the Gambia and Senegal, comes amid a renewal, uh, renewed push by the international community to end Libya's long-running civil war. Turkey-Africa relations have gained substantial momentum since the declaration of Turkey as a strategic partner of the continent by the African Union in January 2008. For more on Erdogan's Africa visit and its significance, Channel Africa's uh, Kumbelo Munjelele spoke to Turkmen Terzi, Turkish journalist based in South Africa. 
this is very critical visit uh, because Turkey Erdogan government has been focusing Africa for uh, since he came to power and then they organized many Turkey and Africa business summit so many business people came and Turkey invested a lot between 2008 to two, uh, 2009 to 2018 in a decade uh, Turkey's uh, total invest uh, total trade volume total between Africa and Turkey is 100 and more than 170 billion dollars and uh, 66 66% of that amount uh, is only with the Northern Africa. So it is very important uh, Erdogan's visit uh, for, to Algeria in terms of business because uh, the Alger Turkey is the second, uh, Algeria is the second in the Africa after the Egypt for Turkey's export. And also Turkey is the biggest investor in uh, energy investment in in, uh, in Algeria. But this visit is is more, uh, more important. Uh, the, it is focused, I think, is not the business, is the, the security issues uh, because Turkey and and the Algerian uh, president, newly elected president Abdulmajid Tabun, met in uh, in uh, sideline. They have a sideline meeting in the Berlin. And uh, Erdogan is a very interesting. Said uh, Algeria security is uh, Turkey's uh, priority. This is very, you know, like interesting. Why various agreements uh, aimed at uh, strengthening the contractual basis of the bilateral relations with these countries are likely to be signed during the visits. But Erdogan's visit visit to the Gambia will be of historic importance, isn't it? As it will be the first ever official presidential visit to this country. Why do you think Gambia is one of the countries that Erdogan has decided to visit? Yes, it is very interesting. Uh, I think Gambia has a very large uh, population of Muslims. So Erdogan's government is an Islamist uh, government. Uh, they were the Democrat, but uh, no more. Since 2011, become very autocrat and uh, Islamist government. So also uh, Yahya Jami, actually the he is the first man close down the Gulen movement school in a whole African continent. He is the first man uh, listen Erdogan and close down the school and Turkish media and many media reported he received many millions dollar uh, from Turkey. So this is uh, in in terms of Erdogan's influence. Uh, so Gambia is very important for Erdogan's uh, Islamist government. Do you think uh, because I remember the last time when I spoke to you, we also reflected on. Uh, his agenda on the continent because uh, there was an issue to do with the Gulam schools yes. that were still operating particularly in West Africa. But do you think the closing down of uh, the Gulam schools will also come up on his agenda when he visits uh, Senegal? Actually Erdogan already closed down the schools in, in the Senegal. So Erdogan president and uh, Turkish president have very, uh, they have the business relations. So Erdogan forced them to close down the uh, Gulen movement his mad moment, uh, they say schools, and but uh, they closed down, and almost thousands and thousands of students uh, they suffered, but they re couldn't restart these schools because Erdogan is wants to marry foundation, educational foundation under the Turkish Educational Ministry. They uh, recently they uh, give 400 million budget to this uh, foundation government. Uh, it is a big people criticize them because Turkish schools are suffering, and you are paying the 400 million dollar to marry foundation to carry out Erdogan. Erdogan's uh, Islamist agenda, but uh, Erdogan closed down, forced, bribed many leaders, closed down schools, but they couldn't uh, restart the school because it is very, very difficult to uh, for them to run these schools. They need uh, many teachers, you know, Turkish teachers for them to difficult to come all the Africa's many places. Uh, so they couldn't restart it. Simply they closed down and the teachers are suffered.
the, the students suffered. Now, you have um, written articles about Turkey and its involvement in Libya's conflict. Your recent article addressed issues pertaining to the hosting of the Libya conference in Germany instead of this conference being held here on the African continent. What are your concerns with regards to the recent conference? And if you can also talk to us about the role that Turkey is playing in efforts to try and find lasting peace in Libya. Turkey is suffer face grave economic uh, crisis and the lo- locomotive of the Turkish economy was the construction but construction is entirely almost collapsed in Turkey. So Turkey now is focused uh, f- uh, focused the uh, defense industry, guns industry selling guns. So many African states seized the Turkish bound uh, ship they carrying gun even the Turkish airlines carried gun to uh, Nigeria. Uh, so they many Nigerian uh they seized in the Lagos and then uh, Libya uh, Haftar uh, complained to the UN Erdogan they, he said Erdogan is sending the, the ba- number of bullets to the country is can kill uh, enough to kill more than 80% of the Libya population so Erdogan uh, wants to uh, defense relation sell try to sell guns already selling his son-in-law uh, Selçuk Bayraktar his own big defense company is already sell more than 25 drones uh, to the Libya and the Russian president Putin said Erdogan family already earned more than 1 billion dollar in Libya so this is the first thing this is the second thing uh, uh, Turkey and uh, Libya signed maritime agreement because uh, remember Turkey is uh, captured or occupied the half of the Cyprus Turkey wants Cyprus uh, northern Cyprus also uh, wants to benefit of this oil and uh, gas drilling exploration in the Mediterranean Sea and the Greece and the southern Cyprus and the Israel and the Egypt they come together Uh, so uh, maritime agreement and the defense agreement with uh, Libya is very important for Turkey also Turkey remember supporting not the whole Turkey but the Erdogan he formed his own uh, Islamist army in Turkey is controlling over 50,000 Syrian allied forces And that was Turkmen Terzi Turkish journalist based in South Africa talking to Kumbelo Mujalele Young scientists Farida Kaji from the Northwest Province in South Africa and Menes Tienkamp from Kimberley, South Africa will be representing South Africa at the 2020 Taiwan International Science Fair. They were selected by a panel of academics and professionals following the Young Scientists International Science Fair, which was held in Gauteng, South Africa in September 2019. The teens captivated judges with their ingenuity, depth of knowledge and mastery of uh, inquiry methodology. To tell us more about the project that she will showcase at the science fair, Farida Kaji joins us on the line. Farida, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, congratulations on impressing the judges at the Eskom Expo for Young Scientists International Science Fair. How do you feel about representing South Africa at the Taiwan International Science Fair? I am super super excited and I am very very honored to be chosen by the Eskom Expo. I never thought I'd actually make it this far. So to to be one of the very very few that will be representing overseas is just astonishing. So Farida, I hear that you have designed a mind-controlled 3D printed prosthetic hand. First of all, wow, that that sounds like a lot. Uh, talk to us about that. Tell us a little bit more about it. What inspired it and how how does it work? Um so you actually missed the best part it's uh, 3D printed from recycled single use plastic. Oh. <laughs> 
So I actually solved a few problems all together in one project. And the first problem was obviously uh, the plastic pollution in South Africa. And the second problem was the price of prosthetics in South Africa. So a normal mm. prosthetic or bionic prosthetic costs around 140,000 rand. And then mine only costs 9,000 rand. But obviously the cost will decrease when the products are bought in bulk. And then the third um, thing that I solved was the fact that this prosthetic is non-invasive, so no unnecessary surgeries for young children or even adults need to be under, undergone to have this prosthetic. Wow. And uh, when we speak of the mind-controlled part, could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Okay, so that's actually way simpler than it sounds. Um, the idea actually came to me when I was playing on one of my brain simulation games on my Apple iPhone. And what you do with this is you put on a headset and this headset uh, uh, picks up your brain activity and you can use it to play games on your phone. So I thought, why are we making so much money and uh, spending so much money on playing games when we can use this simple device and change it around a bit and use it in a prosthetic hand. So uh, I, I took this game and I coded a completely different app for it, and I fitted the part into a prosthetic hand to make it, to make it work through the game. You know, I thought, I used to think I was smart, but uh, having this conversation with you today makes me realize that I am nowhere near it. Um, so, Farida, the Taiwan Fair is taking place from the 3rd of this month. That's in a week. Would you say that you are ready? Um, I think I'm ready. I'm definitely super excited, but I've got all my paperwork. I have what's necessary. And with the ESCOM Expo delegation leader and everything with, with me on the path to Taiwan, I think I'm ready. And also... What advice would you like to give to your peers who would like to also take part in the ESCOM Expo and maybe also represent South Africa um, at maybe the next uh, science fair that is going to be happening, the next international science fair? So I actually took part in the science expo for seven years. And this is the first year that I, out of the seven, that I'll be representing South Africa. So my main advice would be don't give up. Even if it seems like the judges are uninterested in your project this year, try again next year, try again the year after. Even when you feel like giving up, try again until grade 11 or even grade 12 if you if you feel up to it. And um, surely you'll get somewhere. All right, Farida, we wish you all the best as you travel all the way to Taiwan to represent South Africa and uh, show off your project, which sounds absolutely marvelous. Thank you so much. And that was Farida Kaji, one of the two girls who will be representing South Africa in Taiwan for the International Science Fair. The time is now 17.43 Central African time. It's almost time for your economics news with Nositle Zuma, which is going to be happening right after this. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment, 
to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. And now it's time for your latest economics news. Here's Nusikhe Zuma. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. Sanctions by the West and spurned by China, Zimbabwe has turned to the United Arab Emirates in its latest bid to find a savior that can arrest the collapse of its economy. Officials familiar with the plan say Zimbabwe's government has approached the UAE in hopes of selling a stake in its national oil company, and it also wants companies in the UAE uh, to buy more of its gold. In sub-Saharan Africa, at least 80% of the population depends on biomass for daily cooking needs, causing millions of deaths due to household air pollution annually, as well as compounding the effects of climate change due to the wanton uh, destruction of forests to get wood fuels. A Kenyan startup is now betting on its technology and bioethanol to cut carbon emissions, save lives and costs. Sarah Gimani reports. 34-year-old Ket Mutua takes a 300-meter walk to her nearest kiosk in what is now a weekly ritual to refill her cooking fuel canister. Mutua is among the early adopters of the non-polluting bioethanol technology introduced in Kenya in 2015 by a Kenyan startup, Coco Networks. Coco Networks has installed at least 700 smart vending machines across Nairobi where customers can refill their fuel bottles. 
coronavirus outbreak in China, which has killed 81 people and spread to many countries, is expected to hurt China's economy and engine of global growth, though analysts say it is too early to quantify the overall impact on businesses and consumers. The consensus is that in the short term, economic output will be hit as Chinese authorities step up preventive measures, impose travel restrictions, and extend the Lunar New Year holidays to limit the spread of the virus. Millions who usually travel during this period have cancelled their plans with the government ordering that full refunds be provided to air and rail passengers. The Indian government has unveiled plans to sell its entire stake in Air India. The successful bidder would have to take on more than $3 billion of its $8 billion US dollars of debt. The BBC's Nikhil Inanda reports from Delhi. Air India has 146 aircraft and owns 56% of its total fleet. Uh, it's also known to have lucrative international and domestic landing and parking slots. But the carrier has continuously lost market share over the last decade as it saw growing competition from low-cost carriers internationally as well as in the Indian domestic market. The disinvestment of Air India has been a key agenda of the Indian government, which has been trying to offload loss-making companies and improve its balance sheet in the face of the slowest economic growth in a decade. And finally, sources say talks to salvage a tentative $1.7 billion US dollar debt restructuring between Congo Republic and energy traders Glencore and Tri- Trafigura are stuck jeopardizing an international monetary fund bailout for the debt hobbled nation. The IMF in July signed off a $449 million three-year lending program to help the Central African nation's ailing economy, but only $45 million US dollars has been dispersed with other funds subject to semi-annual reviews. Those hinge on restructuring the all-backed loans to the Swiss traders as money the state saves on reduced debt servicing would fill a gap in an overall $2 billion national rescue plan. For your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 360.94 Nigerian Nara, 10.60 Botswana Bula, at 99.90 Kenyan Shilling, and at 14.45 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.18 Brazilian Rule, 62.05 Russian Ruble, 71.11 Indian Rupee, 6.93 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.39 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British Pound, and at 90 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,579 and platinum at $995 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is $59.40 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nusisha Zuma. And now your latest sport. Here is Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with cricket news. 
England searched to 191 run win in the fourth test against South Africa. To complete a 3-1 series victory, only their second overseas success in four years. After settling the home side and unlikely 466 to win, the tourists were frustrated by 98 from Rassi van der Dessen, who added 92 with 5 to Plessis. They were dismissed in successive overs by Ben Stokes and Mark Wood, just before T to leave South Africa. 187 for four. Then Stuart Broad accelerated England's charge with two wickets in as many of his own overs after the break. The retiring Vernon Philander was the first to fall in a final collapse of 4 for 14 to 274 all out. Wood taking the last wicket to the end with 4 for 54 in the innings and nine in the match. Man of the match Wood shares his thoughts on the encounter. No, I think there was a bit of doubt um, going into the game, but uh, boy, am I glad I played now. So, yeah, I'm over the moon. Yeah, I've had uh, a lot of dark days. Um, credit has to go to the backroom staff, really. Uh, the physio, Craigie, patched me up pretty pretty good. Um, everybody's been real supportive. Um, my teammates, the crowd, all the backroom staff. Chris Silverwood goes out there and tries to get me to just have fun, and that's what I try to do this game. South African captain F.F. Duplessis admitted England were a better side on the series. Yeah, we did play well in that first game, but uh, obviously, as we said after that first test, you know, one test doesn't make a summer. There's a lot of hard work still to be done, and right through the series um, after that first game, England were just a little bit better than better than us in every game and every compartment with the ball, a little bit more consistent than with the bat. You know, every time putting those big runs on the board. So you have to give the credit to them for being the better team this series. In football news, Nigeria's football side Enugu Rangers on Sunday became the first club to beat Egyptian side Pyramids FC. Against all odds and expectations, Rangers beat their hosts 1-0 in the match day 5 of the CAF Confederations Cup match, played at the Air Defence Stadium in Cairo. Ifyanyi George scored the all-important goal in the 73rd minute. It is not just a first win for Rangers in the group stage, it is the first time ever that Rangers have won a match in Egypt. Despite the win, Rangers still crashed out of the competition. Enugu Rangers vice-captain Tope Olusesi had this to say after the match. It was a very good game. We won and uh, it was not that painful to us because, yes, we started badly, poorly, but we knew that definitely we were going to get a good result. And... Uh, the Amazuri team, they, they are the late winner and uh, after our game we were just open and watching to see the results uh, of the Amazuri game. But at least we came here to prove that we are not a push-aside team and uh, we fight so very strongly and I'm happy that we had a, a good result even though we are not qualified. It's a, it's a good thing that we, we have to protect our prestige as uh, Rangers. Kenya national men's rugby sevens team will be targeting a medal in Australia after an eighth-place ranking in the Hamilton leg of the World Rugby Series after collecting 10 points in New Zealand on Sunday. Shuja lost their seventh-place playoff match in 1917 to Argentina to collect 10 points. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi reports.
Shuja lost their seventh place playoff match 1917 to Argentina to collect 10 points. Prior to that, Shuja's had thrashed South Africa 36-14 in their final Pool B match to finish second on six points, three behind pool winners England. Kenya had also drawn 12-12 with Japan and lost 19-24 to England in the other pool matches. New Zealand Sevens won the main cup after beating France 27-5 in the final. Shuja, who now lie 10th on the overall World Rugby Sevens series standings with 25 points, will head to Sydney for the next leg. And finally, in tennis news, former champion Stan Wawrinka battled pastor Russian Ford City Daniel Medvedev in five sets to reach the Australian Open quarterfinals with a 6-2, a 2-6, 4-6, 7-6, 6-2 victory today. It was uh, yeah, really tough to play against uh, uh, Danny. Uh, lost against him in the US Open. Uh, today I came back strong in the fourth and the fifth. And uh, yeah, the level was uh, super high. And uh, the atmosphere again, it's something so special here in Australia. So thank you so much. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto NETO Chamani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Samara Mangesi, producer Liv Muswewu, technical producer Tumelo Mkwena, and the rest of the team. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. But should you want to get in contact with us in the meantime, send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, And you can also tweet us at Channel Africa 1. But right now, uh, taking us to the top of the hour is Zwakala by Stimela. We'll see you later. Waited my whole life for this moment. Through it all, somehow we made it through. Young nations, I thank you. Mzansi, let's go. Stand up, put your head up, hands up, all together now. They thought that we would fail, we never. My people listen, I'm a man on a mission, so excuse me for reminiscing. I use my intuition for the children, the legacy we leave behind, blind, but I saw my vision. My ancestors spoke to me, so I had to listen. A new day, new sound, yes, a new religion. From Cape Town to the gates of Robin Island Prison, a celebration, a great period, young nation. So I'll find another tight collaboration from suburbs in the cities to your local locations. I'm just sharing dreams, 
glad you shared my vision. I was free when I was born, so now it's time to listen. Listen, look at where we came from. It's like a miracle. No photograph, my life story made it lyrical. I'm digital, but you feel me in the physical. They try to stop us, but I made it to my pinnacle. Each one, teach one, bring one in the sun. So if I reach one, my job is done. This is true, so embrace it. Dance to it, go ahead, clap your hands to it, groove to it, stay focused, don't lose it. I can rule that whole school, say what it is. Young nation, that's gonna live my fist. Oh, Friday afternoon in December Chilling pools, cooler boxes, cool as a cucumber You know there's nothing like I'm Zanzi in the summer Close friends of mine have passed away before the sun I dedicate this to you, I fit to every line I never thought that we would make it this far But here I am and there you are Stand up Put your hands together Thank you Brother Ray For freedom This time Never forget where you came from Just remember Time is now. The world is yours. Stand up. Never give up.